So I was not here with you last month. I was sorry to miss our first retreat. I was taken away unexpectedly by my work, taken away unexpectedly by my work for Athens Group to the Netherlands and to Germany. And uh, it was a wonderful trip. I wish I had time to tell you about it, but I don't. I'm going to launch directly into my teaching. However, I will say this. Uh, Brett taught last week and did a wonderful job. I do not have the same kind of gift of teaching that Brett has. So I need help. So why don't you all all pray for me? Because you need me to need help, too. <laughs> pray for me for the teaching. Ask the Holy Spirit to come. Amen. All right, well, I'm going to, uh, a little bit like Brett, but perhaps not as dramatically, tell some stories of my own woundedness and ways that I've been healed on the inside from my sin. Uh, I'm a significantly different person than I was 20 years ago or 15 years ago or five years ago, and Lord willing, I'll be saying the same thing going forward. Uh, a couple of purposes for this. One is to... Uh, open up some examples from my life to hopefully encourage you and to show you just what does it look like? How does it, you know, how does it work for one person? It doesn't mean it's going to work exactly the same way for you, but as someone wise has said, God is completely consistent in his character and completely unpredictable in what he does, how he does it. And so, uh, so it's good to hear how he does it sometimes. Um, but another purpose is to really honor all of you. Um, by becoming transparent to you. If we're going to be walking in community and retreat, uh, pursuing God together, it's important for you to know your leaders and have them, their lives be open to you. So I'm going back 25 years ago, something like that, to 1986, 87, and I'm in college. So I'm the age of about, about between Noah and Peggy. Um, my two oldest children. And I'm a freshman, um, and I have a friend um, named Frank who's inspired me to try my first serious fasting. I've never really done much fasting. But Frank's an interesting guy. He was on about the 12-year graduation plan at St. John's. We joked that he was going to be the only student who actually achieved tenure at the college. The reason for this is when he got there and started reading the Bible, this is not a Christian college, but they read the great books of Western civilization, including the Bible. In his sophomore year, he started reading the Bible, and he had come in with kind of a criteria for truth, three things that he said, if I find the truth, this is what it's going to look like. And when he read the Gospels, he said, this is it. And so he dropped out of St. John's and went essentially hard after God, and by that I mean he fasted for a year, one meal a week for a year, reading his Bible, praying, pursuing God. So he's an interesting, intense kind of person. <laughs> and uh, I really treasured his friendship that freshman and sophomore year while I was there in Santa Fe with him. Um, and in the spring of my freshman year, I decided to try my own little fast for three days. But... Uh, I unwisely decided to fast from food and water for three days, not having any guidance other than Frank, who was very intense. <laughs> this was a mistake, and about a day and a half into it, I began hallucinating about water fountains and waterfalls and lakes and decided maybe I should start drinking water again. So I started drinking water and continued on with my food fast, and the third day of my fast, the last day, was a Saturday. And evening approached and I was really hungry. 
And so I began my debate with God. So three days, God, when does this exactly end? You know, is it tomorrow morning at breakfast or really my last meal was three days ago almost exactly because I ate dinner and then I haven't eaten since. So I began this debate, you know, and I kind of knew this was not a very godly debate. But there it is. And I felt the Lord say, okay, you want to eat? Go on down to the cafeteria. Woohoo! I head on down to the cafeteria and get there just in time to see in the distance the doors closing because my time had expired for when the cafeteria was open. But Frank was in front of me and he slipped in right as the doors closed. <laughs> so I thought, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go wait in the dining room. Frank's going to come out with some food and I'm going to steal some of his food. <laughs> So I carried out my plan. I went to the dining room and waited. Sure enough, Frank comes out with this massive tray laden with food. And I'm inwardly rejoicing, thinking, there's no way he can eat all that food. I'm going to get some of it. So Frank sits down, and I sit down across from him. Hey, Frank, how's it going? But I, I don't ask him for any of his food. I just wait. So he starts to eat and talk, and he's a big talker. So this is probably an hour and a half. He eats this meal, talking. Picks up his fork, you know, I'm watching the fork. <laughs> he's talking, he lays it down again. I think, ah, oh, he's done. Oh, picks it up again, eats it, and ends up eating every bite of food on that tray. And I get left with none, and I felt like the Lord was laughing at me, saying, yeah, you want food? Go down to the cafeteria. <laughs> Your fasting's going to get more interesting. Um, uh, later, well, I'll say one thing, which is that I don't remember much of what he said during that hour and a half because I wasn't paying much attention to what he said. But he did say one thing that stuck with me and became very important. And that was, he said, most people don't realize that, that it's okay if they don't desire God, if they don't want to know God. Because it's enough to want to want to know God. For me, that was very encouraging. And that became something that stuck with me and, and helped me later on. But later on, I... I uh, was telling Frank the story, and he just said to me, why didn't you ask me for some of my food? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. This is one of the primary purposes of inner healing. We do not know why we do most of the things we do in our life. From our earliest days, conception, birth, on, childhood, we have been formed in images other than the image of Christ. We are wounded, we are broken, and we become so accustomed to living with our brokenness that it seems normal to us. It's hard to imagine any other way of thinking or feeling or believing. So I'm going to pause right now. I actually have four different parts for this talk, and in between the parts, I want to give just an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work among us and for us to pray. And so if I could get a couple of helpers to pass out these sheets up here, I've got sheets to kind of guide us and help us in our, in our prayer times. I want to make it very clear that it's the Holy Spirit that will be speaking to us today. And as I go through my talk, I think the Holy Spirit's going to highlight different portions for different people. So as we enter into these times of prayer and just listening to the Lord, don't feel like you have to hear something. Don't try to make something up or generate something. Just let the Holy Spirit be at work in your heart and uh, 
and, and highlight the things that he wants to highlight. He is very active among us. It's not an accident that you're here, that I'm here, that he's had me prepare this talk for you right now, for me right now. He is at work in our midst. We can be very confident in that. So you can see part number one, what drives us? <laughs> what drove me to not ask Frank for that food? Let's read together Romans 7, 18-25. Then we're going to pause just a moment of silence. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. If you have a pen and you hear something, you might want to write it down on the sheet of paper or in the journal. And then we're together going to read the collect from the Book of Common Prayer. So I've pulled some of the collects that we're using for bridge prayer and woven them into the teaching so that we can kind of see how integrated our prayer life and our, our uh, life of discipleship is. Romans 7, let's read it together. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray together. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, let's fast forward a little bit in my life. Uh, I'm about 30 now. I'm married in the late 1990s. And it's a season uh, where God is beginning to open up uh, the prophetic to us. Amy and I are having dreams, uh, unusual, interesting experiences that some of y'all have heard about. Um, and at one point, Amy visited Kansas City. Now, at this time, there wasn't an international house of prayer at Kansas City the way there is now. But there was a church called Metro Christian Fellowship, which is where the IHOP was born out of. And she came back from the uh, women's conference that she went to with a CD for me, which was a, a band nobody had ever heard of called Delirious, uh, which I loved, and also a recommendation, Thomas, you need to go up to Kansas City because uh, there's good stuff happening there. So I began to head up regularly as well. Um, and after hearing the pastor of Metro, Mike Bickle, speak on the Song of Songs, I found he had a whole teaching on the Song of Songs, 20 teachings long on the Song of Songs. And for some reason, it really uh, grabbed my attention, and I started listening to it, listened to it multiple times. And there was really in, in it a core message that I was drinking into my soul. And that message was that God enjoyed me even in my weakness, that he wasn't waiting for me to achieve some level of maturity in order to enjoy me. He enjoyed me even as I was maturing. And this was meaningful to me and was very evident to me because I had small children at the time. And so I had the image of, you know, when your child is learning to walk, you don't wait to praise them or to enjoy them until they can 
you know, finally, okay, finally they can walk without stumbling. No, that you encourage them, you get down, you, come on, good try, you almost had it, you know. God's that way with us. We're stumbling, we're falling, we're just learning how to walk. He's enjoying us. He's not only encouraging us, he's not only teaching us, he's enjoying us in our weakness. I'd always worked or felt the need to work to earn God's favor. See, I knew that his forgiveness was free. I'd been well taught in that. But in my mind, or maybe more in my heart, that did not extend to his enjoyment being free. I was always pressing myself, pray more, study more, perform better, looking for the day when I would hear a well done from my Father in heaven. So the Holy Spirit used Mike Pickle's message from the Song of Songs to heal my heart. I became not only convinced, but utterly enchanted at the idea that God not only loved me, he liked me. Imagine that. God didn't just tolerate me in order to show his heroic goodness. He delighted over me and lavished his love on me. And it was at this time that I chose my life verse. And it was from the Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. It's a statement. The Song of Songs, if you're not familiar with this book of the Bible, is a rather strange book of the Bible. It's a love song, essentially, uh, between a, a king, the bridegroom, and his bride. And this verse is a statement from the bride to the bridegroom or about the bridegroom. And I made it my identity in Jesus. Here's what the Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10 says. I think it's on your sheet. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. So I chose that verse as my life verse to form the foundation of my life in Jesus. A few months later, I had a dream. In this dream, I was standing on 29th Street near Breed's Hardware Store, if some of you all know where that is. And this bus was coming towards me, the 20, number 22 bus. And right before it got to me, it's a capital metro bus, it changed its number to the 710 bus, 7 slash 10. And they did a U-turn on 29th Street, which is impossible if you know that street. But dreams, that doesn't really matter. And took off the other direction. That was the dream. And for some reason, it was like, wow, that's a really interesting dream. So I went to Gary Cockroft. And he's very good with dreams. I said, Gary, I had this dream, and I explained the dream to him. He said, well, he said, you know, sometimes when you have a series of numbers like that in a dream, it, it's a Bible verse. So why don't you see if that corresponds to a Bible verse? So like 22, 7, 10, okay, 22, what's the 22nd book of the Bible? Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. It was the very passage I had already picked as my life verse, and it was very sweet of the Lord to confirm that in a dream, and the picture of the dream was very much of a turning around, a turning of the direction of my life. He still continues to confirm it. On my recent trip, I mentioned I was in the Netherlands and visited a house of prayer there in Rotterdam. And as I was at this house of prayer, they began to just prophesy, and they began to prophesy over me and said many things that were right on, right on target. But they began with just, oh, the Lord loves you. He delights in you. He just enjoys you so, you know, just on and on and on. And after that was done, I was like, thank you, Lord. And then the Lord brought to my attention the date, July 10th. 710. I just love God. He's so clever. <laughs> so I believe this is the first lesson of inner healing and really the foundation of a life of apprenticeship to Jesus. 
God chose to initiate Jesus' ministry by telling him audibly in the presence of everyone, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We don't walk in Jesus' footsteps until we, too, hear this message resonating in our hearts. So I want to, once again, have a scripture that we read together, and then have a pause, and then read the prayer. This scripture is also from the Song of Songs, and uh, it refers to the fact that even in our weakness and in our sinfulness, we're beautiful to God. So let's read together Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 5. Dark am I, yet lovely. Let's pray together. Open, Lord, my eyes that I may see. Open, Lord, my ears that I may hear. Open, Lord, my heart and mind that I might understand. So shall I turn to you and be healed. Since that time, I've never doubted the Lord's love for me. I've been growing lately in my understanding of what this healing means. It was not just healing of a wound that enabled me to grow in God where before I'd been stuck. It was a transformation of my inner being. I'm coming to see now... 2013, 15, 16 years later, that that performance mentality was actually sinful. I really haven't dared to go there before because of the implications that would mean. I wanted it to be ignorance or maybe a mindset that was inflicted on me that I was finally able to shake off. That lets me off the hook. But I think one of the most important steps in apprenticeship to Jesus is to resist the victim mentality. A victim mentality can be really obvious. We've probably met people with this kind of mindset. Uh, someone who blames other people all the time or blames their con the external conditions around them for the way they are. Uh, but it can also be very subtle and devious. That was the way it was for me. And the way it sounded in my own mind was this. I was doing the best that I could. Well, actually, that's not true. To say I was doing the best that I could is a lie. I could have been doing better. I could have grasped onto God's love earlier. I mean, I had plenty of chances. I grew up in Hope Chapel, under Dan Davis's teaching, <laughs> I guarantee you this is a core message that I didn't get. I could have let the message of God's enjoyment of me sink from my mind into my heart long before I did. I was actually, I come to see I was choosing to resist that message. Why was I doing this? Once again, <laughs> why do we do the things that we do? It was foolishness to do this, but it enabled me to justify my actions without having to face the pain that I was in or face the pain I was causing other people through my performance-driven mentality. I am now willing to own this fact 
that I was a young man trying to pursue and please God in spite of an emotional wound, and I was essentially continually sinning against God through unbelief. That was my state. It might help to think of the prodigal son. So imagine the prodigal son. We all are familiar, hopefully, with that story from Luke 15. Imagine him at the state where he's feeding the pigs, right? And at that point, he might say something like this. Here I am. I'm working hard. I'm trying my best. I'm doing the best I can with what I've got. I'm, I'm feeding these pigs. I even wish I could eat some of their food, but heroically I'm choosing not to because it would be immoral to do so. They're not allowing me that, even that food. But I wish I could. That statement, that kind of mentality, completely ignores the fact that he chose to leave his father. He chose to take the inheritance. He chose to squander it. And at that moment, he's choosing not to return. There's a whole series of choices that have led up to that and that he's actually making at that moment. Even though if you look at, if you just took that single snapshot of his life, you might see there's a young man feeding pigs. So for me, that's a, a helpful image because it may sound condemning or heavy to say, I was continually sinning. But don't let it be that way. I think really for me, it's become a question of justification which is a big word that you see in the scriptures. My choice was self-justification. I suspect many of us in this room are engaged in that today. If we lay down this compulsion to justify ourselves, we don't go unjustified. That's what we've got to realize. Choosing not to justify ourselves doesn't mean we're not justified. It means we allow Jesus to be the one who justifies us. This is a much better choice. <laughs> I want to ima imagine yourself before the court of heaven, the throne of judgment, and you have two choices. You can be the person who justifies yourself to God the Father. Or you can choose to be silent and allow Jesus, the great advocate, to be the one who justifies you. Let's read together Romans 8. 30. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And now let's stand to read this liturgy of repentance from the Catholic Apostolic Church. I found this in one of Father Peter Hawkins' books. I just thought it was a beautiful prayer. It's a great prayer to, to pray often. We have received thy truth with our minds, but have closed our hearts against thee. We have sat in judgment on those whom thou hast set over us, and we judge not ourselves. We have loved the ways of disorder in which we have lived, and have been slow to learn reverence and humility. We have presumed on thy long suffering, yet deal with us in mercy and in truth, and forgive us our sins through thy Son, Jesus Christ, our only Redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, amazingly enough, having learned kind of the lesson of the love of God for me, God wasn't finished with me yet. <laughs> He's very gentle to, to, to take us one step at a time, isn't he? 
So in the early 2000s, I think I was be believing as I was pressing into this truth that becoming confident in the love of God would be enough. Learning to abide in Him, rest in His love, would transform every part of my life. Apparently, God didn't share my opinion because He gave me a second life verse. I also have a shortcut for this one. So the shortcut for my first life verse is 22.7.10. I remember it. Second one is 2C514, 2C514. And I've, I've had, in my more rebellious moments, thoughts, okay, if I were to ever get a tattoo, <laughs> I, would, I would take the five fingers on one hand and the five on the other and put these 22.7.10 on my left hand, 2C514 on my right hand, and that way these would always be before me, these two life verses. So maybe someday. <laughs> the, the life verses that God's given me fit together very beautifully and actually relate to what Amy said at the beginning. Song of Songs 710 is a first commandment verse about loving the Lord your God with all your heart and receiving his love, belonging to him, being loved by Jesus and loving him back. 2 Corinthians 5.14, 2C514, is about loving my neighbor, which John Patrick brought up, the second commandment. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. That's his words. When I read this, I immediately recognized this was not true of me. I was not there yet. Now, I was compelled by many things. I had many compulsions. But I couldn't say it was the love of Christ that was compelling me. It was something else, often something that I didn't understand. I would, I would have to do something. I have to do this. I have to do it. I had the experience of a tight knot forming in my stomach. And I could only think of one thing, that one thing that I was feeling pressure, internal pressure to do. I need plenty of reasons oftentimes in those moments to not do that one thing but I would ignore or rationalize them away. I was compelled, but not by Christ. Have you ever felt this? Any of these types of feelings? So at that time, God drew my attention to another scripture that was a very helpful contrast, and I'll open up evangelist Patricia Gerald's Bible to read it. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. Very interesting little story. It's right after Saul is anointed by Samuel as king of Israel. One of the first things he does. 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 5. And I'm just going to read this little story, and then I'll mention the part of it that jumps out at me. The Philistines, the enemies of Israel, assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. 
When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and in thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. So they're hiding, they're scattering. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. This is a mistake, by the way. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer up the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people, David, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gogol and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. So Saul was worried about the battle, and rightly so. He saw his already too small army dwindling away and was afraid that more soldiers would leave. His eyes were on his circumstances, not on the Lord. He had a good excuse for his actions. Samuel was a little late. These combinations of pressures, circumstances, the disappointing actions of others are very familiar to me. This was the inner language of my mind most of the time. Not that I let it out, but it was inside. Now we've seen from this story that compulsion comes from the outside. The army, the decisions of the soldiers to leave, Samuel's tardiness. However, I looked up the Hebrew words is that I tried to highlight as I read it, that word. Saul says, I felt compelled. There was a compulsion in him to offer up the sacrifice. I looked that word up, and it's an interesting word. It primarily is used in the Old Testament to mean self-discipline in a positive sense. And the important point is it's internally generated. Saul was compelling himself. For me, this is a really important point. Because the first battle is to recognize that you're driven by compulsions. For me to recognize that I'm driven. And to recognize that is huge. It's a great victory to see it. Because most of the time, as I said at the very beginning, we don't see the things that drive us. We don't know why we do the things that we do. So to begin to see those things is very helpful. The second battle once again, is against that victim mentality, to blame something 
outside yourself rather than accepting responsibility for your decisions, my decisions, and my actions. In the end, it's the decisions I make that uniquely define who I am as a person. I am responsible for the decision to give in to a compulsion. Compulsions can be very strong. <laughs> they can seem like giants in your life, right? I mean, there's people that battle compulsions to drugs and to addictions and things like that that are very, very powerful. It was kind of cool when I was, uh, this week I was praying early in the one morning at our apartment complex about this teaching, and I was walking around and I walked by the free table. Well, in our apartment complex we have a table where people put stuff they don't want anymore. And it's called the free table. And you can always take anything that you find on the free table off. It's free. Usually the stuff we put on there nobody takes. <laughs> Eventually, it just disappears. But I walked by the free table and noticed there was a shirt there that had a scripture on it. And I grabbed it, and I felt the Lord say, this shirt you need to wear when you're giving the teaching on Saturday. And it has a victory, the ministry of challenge, which is a great ministry over in East Austin. And the scripture is Second Samuel or something, some, some passage. I can't read it because it's on my back. First Samuel, but it's uh, David and Goliath, and it's kind of the, the picture back there is of David and Goliath. And you can feel like that when you're facing a compulsion. It can feel like it's a Goliath. It's huge. Interestingly enough, though, this idea of internal versus external, not only is the decision to give in to the compulsion ours, but the compulsion itself is internally generated. Where does it come from? Well, there's a classic work on inner healing by the Sanfords. It talks about things like bitter root judgments, unforgiveness, inner vows that we've made, other ways that we make decisions that then produce compulsions in our life. And some of the work of inner healing is repenting, identifying and repenting from those earlier decisions. God is always very kind to provide us a multitude of opportunities to make different decisions. He's very kind. Now, I want to be clear on the type of compulsions I was talking about in my life. You know, I was not OCD. The pencils on my desk do not have to line up exactly evenly, as the AHOP staff will tell you. <laughs> sometimes there's not any pencils at all on the desk. In fact, sometimes I don't even have a desk. The types of compulsions I'm speaking about are the kinds that I think we're all pretty familiar with. So here are some examples. The compulsion to please other people. The compulsion to buy things. The compulsion to always be right. The compulsion to comfort ourselves through certain types of food or drink. The compulsion to not trust anyone else. The compulsion to pornography. For me, the compulsion that God highlighted was a compulsion to leadership. Does that sound strange to you? Like one of these things is not like the others? <laughs> Actually, this is exactly the compulsion Saul was struggling with as recorded in 1 Samuel 13. So in the early days of 
once again, back to 1999 or so, I had the vision, many of y'all have heard, that kind of launched the idea of the House of Prayer. And so I, I visited Kansas City. I saw what they were doing. I'm like, OK, I know I'm called to start a House of Prayer in the city of Austin. So I started working on it in my mind. I had all these ideas, all these thoughts, all these things to do. I started connecting with some other people that were like-minded. And at one point, there was a meeting in our house. And in this meeting, we were going to discuss the idea of forming a 24-7 house of prayer in the city of Austin. And after the meeting, Amy came up to me and said, Thomas, I was kind of surprised by what you said in that meeting. I said, what did you mean? I said, you, you acted like you were supposed to lead this house of prayer. I, I've never heard that from you. I didn't know you wanted to lead a 24-7 house of prayer. And that shocked me a little bit. And I was sure that I had said it to her previously. <laughs> now I'm sure I hadn't, because Amy's almost always right. And uh, it is an example of a pattern, a compulsion in my life to, to find my legitimacy in the identity of the thing that I was leading, if that makes any sense at all. In the same way, Saul's legitimacy was at stake in this battle. And so he felt compelled to do something about it, to offer up the sacrifice, which he shouldn't do. And there are a number of decisions I made in those early days of the house of prayer that were driven much more by my own compulsion to leadership and to identifying my own legitimacy through my leadership than from the Holy Spirit or from the leadership of God. I was just in Germany, as I mentioned, and driving down the road with an Athens group colleague, and we were talking, and I was telling some about the house of prayer, and I mentioned the fact that one of our callings is to prepare the way for the return of Jesus. We consider it very important to pray, to watch and wait, and prepare our lives so that so that towards the return of Jesus to the earth. He said, I find that very disturbing. <laughs> he said, don't you know that all sorts of people out there have had that focus, and they've done very odd things. I knew who he was talking about, the date people, right? And he's a very unchurched guy, uh, who God touched deeply, by the way, uh, on our trip. Um, but the answer that came to me was, I think, from God, because it was so good. <laughs> I said, if my legitimacy depended upon my being right, you can be concerned. Be concerned if my legitimacy as a, as a person depends upon my being right about Jesus returning in my lifetime. But it doesn't. I could be wrong, and that would be fine. I'm still going to go for it. I'm going to still live my life based on preparing the as much as I can, the way for the return of the Lord. And he liked that answer. He's like, that's a really, wow, that's a good answer. I thought, thank you, Lord. <laughs> so do you see how my compulsion was very similar to Saul's, only, thank the Lord, on a much smaller scale? Believe me, you don't want a Saul as the leader of your community. You do, however, want a Paul. Being free from our compulsions enables us to be compelled by the love of Christ. The Greek word used in 2 Corinthians 5.14 for the love of Christ compels us is very different than the Hebrew word used in 1 Samuel. That spoke of an internally generated compulsion. 
The Greek word refers to an external compulsion, something from the outside. For Paul, after he became free from the other internal compulsions, the love of Jesus invaded him and began to compel him. This is what he speaks about in verses 14 through 16 of the same passage. It says, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. The worldly viewpoint of people is that they exist to help us get our own way. This produces behaviors like manipulation, getting someone to get you your own way, or anger when you don't get your own way because they won't behave the way you want them to behave. Paul is saying that for him, everyone else is dead as regards these manners of relating. Christ died, so all died. Does it make sense to manipulate a dead person? No. That's why we no longer view anyone from a worldly compulsive viewpoint. This is the goal. Instead, having died to this compulsive life, we now live for Jesus, who died for us and was raised again. We offer ourselves to be compelled by him. We offer our wills as a channel for his love. We become his ambassadors, ministers of reconciliation, new creations. This is the goal of inner healing. It's important for you to hear that I am not there yet. I want to be. I'm striving after it. I'm telling you these stories to say I haven't, I haven't reached it yet. It really took me a good decade from the late 90s to the late 2000s to press into the Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10, allowing it to change my emotions, my thoughts, my instinctive reactions. I react differently now. I'm about five years or so along in pressing into 2 Corinthians 5.14. This doesn't discourage me. As I heard Mike Bickle say one time, you're going to be doing something else for the next 10 years of your life. Why not this? <laughs> 10 years from now, you're going to wake up and say, I did something for the last 10 years. Why not pursue freedom from compulsions and the joy of being compelled by the love of Christ? After all, it took decades of formation to give me my performance-oriented compulsive way of living. It took 40 years of living in the desert for Moses to be transformed. It took 13 years for Paul in Tarsus to be transformed. We should be encouraged that God is at work in our lives, in our hearts, in our midst, in our churches, in our community, transforming us into apprentices of Jesus who spend time with him to learn from him how to be like him. Let's pray together, Jude 24 and 25. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, 
be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's stand and pray this wonderful prayer from the Global Day of Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, because you were dead but are now risen, and the Father has given you a name above every name, you will defeat all powers of evil, tear down strongholds and ideologies that resist the knowledge of God, remove the veil of darkness that covers the peoples, restrain the evil that promotes violence and death, Bring deliverance from demonic oppression. Break the hold of slavery, tyranny, and disease. Fill us with courage to preach your word fearlessly and to intercede for the lost faithfully. Almighty God, deliver us from evil. Amen.